Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Well, again, today we're going to be talking about purpose discovering God's created purpose for our lives. Purpose is without a doubt something that a lot of people think about, wonder about, like, what is my purpose in life, we might say. Um, the, The definition, dictionary definition of purpose is the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists, okay? That, that's where we get the definition of purpose. So if we're going to define our purpose, it's important for us to go back to the very beginning when God created man. And what was God's purpose in creating man? Well, we find that in Genesis chapter 1 when God says, let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So I want you to catch this. Like the purpose for which we have been created initially was to be an image of God. A picture, if you will, of God. Our lives were called to reflect to glorify, or we might use the word magnify God. That is, a person should be able to look at my life or your life, and it should reflect who God is to them. We see there in Genesis 1 what that looked like, what that looked like, that bearing the image of God. It was man being in relationship with God. And it was good. No walls, no weirdness, no awkwardness. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. How cool would that be? Just a connection with God without the interference of sin and all the other things that distract. Not only was there right relationship with God, but there was right relationship with one another. Adam and Eve, they were there together. There was no shame. Again, no walls, no weirdness, no awkwardness. When God said, let us make man in our image, he was speaking of himself as the our, like that of the Trinity, the unity of God. And that is is God's design for us as the church to bear his image, to be in right relationship with him and right relationship with one another. And if we're, if we're real today, I mean, if we're just getting real with ourselves, it's like we could all go, man, sign me up, but how on earth does this happen? After the fall, it just seems like everything is kind of falling apart. Can, is it possible for me to be an, an image bearer of God? Is it possible for me to magnify God today? And, and while we may not do this until obviously we go to be with him eternally, I very much believe God would have us bear his image, as we're going to see today. 
here on, on this earth right now. And that's why I chose the book of First Peter to go to because here in First Peter, Peter is gonna talk to us about purpose, not only about our purpose, but he's going to relate to us how we can begin to live out that purpose in our life. And I'm just praying, God, would you expand our hearts? Would you expand our minds today that we might take more hold of this in our life? So again, we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. But before we do, I'd like to, to consider with you who Peter was writing to. What was the reason for him writing 1 Peter? You find that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Um, he was writing to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, when it says pilgrims, don't think of like a pilgrim with a pilgrim hat. He was writing to a, a people that were dispersed or were on the move. The time in which Peter wrote this book, it's important for us to catch this, it was somewhere around 64 AD. And if you know your history at that time, was when Nero was ruling. And Nero was nuts. He was nuts. And he had set his heart specifically against the church, against those that were Christ believers. Many Christians at that time would give their life. They would be burned by Nero as he rode his chariot through, through his place. It was a time where, where Christians were being very, very persecuted. And through that persecution, there was a dispersion that took place, both of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So there were a lot of people that Peter was writing to that, that had lost their positions, titles, maybe even family members. Um, at this time, Christianity in the world was at the most like 1% of the population were Christian. So I, I, I share that because, you know, it's funny, again, today, as Sean was sharing, today is the day that we think about the persecuted church. And I hadn't planned this, but God did. And um, it was last week I met with a pastor from Pakistan and just got to sit down with him. I was very interested to hear about the ministry there in Pakistan and what was going on. And I, I was asking him, like, I mean, tell me, tell me what's happening. Um, how, how, how's evangelism and reaching? And, and I really would have some reality set in as he, as he spoke with me. And he, he said, Cliff, man, like where we live, Christianity's 1% of the population. 99% of the population is Islamic. Christians are a complete outcast. They're forced to live in slums. And his primary ministry is not to the Islamic people, but to the Christians. He's felt the call of God to go into those slums, to create schools, and to help them. Because a Christian in, in that nation, they can't even get a good job. They, they're only allowed to be street sweepers and things like that. And it was a real eye-opening thing of, of what we here in the West can take such for advantage. And this was something that he said that, again, really struck me as I said, can I, can I just ask you, like, what, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? And, and what I expected for him to say was, we need money, you know? And, and that is not what he said. He said, Cliff, what we need is prayer. 
He says there is a demonic influence through this Islam and would you pray that God break that down and that God strengthen his church to be a light in that community. And so I just share that with you as Sean shared. Man, may we be joining uh, arms with our brothers and sisters that are in these types of situations. But coming back to Peter, again, this is who Peter's writing to. The purpose of him writing to them It was for hope. It was for hope. The whole book was to encourage them in the hope they had, not in their circumstances, but in their position in Christ. And in chapter one, he would immediately go into stirring up that hope of reminding them, though their circumstances were changing, there was something unchanged, and that was because Jesus Christ that they had trusted and had risen from the grave. And they were given a promise of a new start. They were given a promise of a new inheritance, that this wasn't it, that one day they would be home and all of this would be taken away. They were given the promise of a new power and he would remind them of the power of God that had been supplied to them. He would also remind them of how God was using the trials that they were going through, not to break them, but to build them. And then as he comes to chapter two, he's gonna talk to them about their purpose, about the call. Again, the whole goal of this was to stir up, create hope in these believers. None of these promises that God had given them would change because they were founded on the unchanged God that they had put their faith in. And and church, I want to say this, and I want you to think about this, because Nick said something last week that I I think was so profound and for us to really grab hold of. He said, you're never going to be content or satisfied with a position or with a title or a certain circumstance if you're not satisfied, content without it, okay? And, And the truth of the matter is, is our true satisfaction, our true contentment, our true peace that we would all pursue and long for, it does not come from position, title, circumstance. It comes from right relationship with God and ultimately understanding the purpose of God and living that purpose out for our life. And so Peter here is going to give them two allegories for them to understand. Ultimately, God would give them to us so that we might understand our purpose, our calling. And we find it here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, coming to him a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you noticed I underlined two key things there because these two things speak about our purpose and the calling that God's given us. The first thing that he focuses on is that we have been called a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Paul And Jesus would both refer to that same word as a temple. We've been called a temple, a spiritual house. Can you go forward a couple um, things there, Steve? 
We have been called the, the temple of God. One more. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Okay, so what Peter is going to seek to express here is that you and I have been called to be a temple of God, a spiritual house of God, a place in which God dwells. And I think for us to understand this completely or fully, it's important for us to understand the purpose of the original temple. Uh, Maybe you have heard this. If you haven't, it's something to, to lock in your brain. If you want to interpret scripture correctly, there is a rule of first mention. And so if you're looking at a word and you're trying to figure it out, one, one way that you can begin to discover what that word means that you're looking at is look at the, the first mention of that word. Well, the first mention of temple or tabernacle or sanctuary that's mentioned in the Bible is all the way back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 25. It was in Exodus 25 that after uh, Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai, he'd received the law of God Within that law that that he received, God gave clear directions of things that they were to do. And one thing that they were to do was to build a house, to build a tabernacle, or in this reference here, to build a sanctuary. He says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Okay, so what was the original purpose of the first tabernacle? It was that God might dwell among his people. Now don't miss that. Because was that not the purpose of God in the beginning? Genesis 1. God made man to dwell with him. To be connected with him. That had been broken in Genesis 3 as man did what God commanded him not to do. He ate of the tree of good and evil, and that that wall of separation came between him and man. But God's purpose, it never changed. He still wanted to dwell among his people, and God would use the tabernacle as a point and a place for the people to experience the presence of God and him dwelling among them. This is important for us to catch. If we're gonna understand ourselves, as a temple, we need to understand the original use because it didn't change, as we're gonna see here shortly. But before we move on to that, I wanna give you a picture of the original tabernacle. Now, obviously, there were no cameras back then, so this isn't the real one, but somebody took the time to put a good replica together of exactly what God had commanded the children of Israel to do. Now, one thing that you might be surprised by is this isn't very fancy. I mean, like, this is pretty plain. We've got, like, a rectangle fence. We've got the box there, which is an altar. We've got a a water basin. And then we have, like, a a tent. And that's exactly what this first um, tabernacle tent was. It was actually a movable, something they could take up, pick up, and it would travel with them as they went but it was a place that God had made so that the people could experience his presence, which we're gonna look at more here in just a moment. But I just wanna say this really quick. What made this so amazing wasn't 
what it looked like, obviously. Now, even as you went into the inside of the tent, you'd find two rooms. The first room was the holy place, and then you'd find the holy of holies. In the holy place, you'd have the table of showbread, you'd have the candlesticks, and you'd have the um, altar of incense. Then there was a big curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, they were to build a box, which would be called the Ark of the Covenant, that would be covered in gold with two golden cherubim with their wings facing, their faces facing, it would meet in the middle, and that would be called the mercy seat. And God told Moses, this is the place where I'm going to come and meet with you. So I want you to catch this. Not in a very amazing structure, but what made it amazing wasn't the structure, it's what would abide in the structure. I say that to you because today you might feel like, you know, I don't feel like anybody very like special, you know? You might look each week and go, man, Pastor Nick, man, that's a tabernacle. It's a bald tabernacle, but it's a tabernacle nonetheless, right? And we can a lot of times like underestimate um, who we are and what God's called us to. But we're gonna see here this morning, guys, like what makes any of us significant isn't us but it's he that would seek to dwell in us and through us. It's the Lord. So this was the first tabernacle. Later after this, um, David, King David, after the children of Israel would come into the place of promise, God gave them this when they left Egypt and they were going to the place of promise. It was the place that he would meet and dwell among them. As they came into the land as God had promised them, they conquered the land and they raised up a king. First king, Saul, he was an evil king, not after God's own heart. The second king, though, was a man after God's own heart. We know him as David, right? And David had in his heart to build God a house. I wanna read this to you before we look at this next verse. Um, Thank you for waiting, Steve. Um, I appreciate that, because this is what David said in 2 Samuel chapter seven. He says, now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But then, (laughs) that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan and said, go tell my servant David, this says, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say, to my servant, David. So David had this thing in his heart, which was, I think, a good thing. Nathan, the prophet, he even thought it was a good thing. I want to build, like, an awesome building for God. Nathan says, go do all that's in your heart till God knocks on Nathan's door and says, "Ah, ixnay that. God, God is going to tell David something, a prophecy, really, that he can't build him a house but 
God's gonna tell him, I'm gonna build you a house. Look at this uh, verse in in 2 Samuel. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. And so God comes to David and says, David, you can't build me a house, but I'm gonna build you a house. And, and this house that I'm gonna build, it's gonna come through your lineage, or as you saw, I underlined seed. Seed's kind of a key word that travels through the whole Bible, speaking and mentioning that of the Messiah. Why I believe that the temple that would be built next, because it's, it's about to be built, his son Solomon would build the temple, was not the temple that God was speaking of here, is for this very reason of God speaking and saying, I will be his father and he will be my son. So David passes away. His son Solomon comes up. I'm sure Solomon latched right onto this and he's like, I am the man that's going to build the temple for the Lord. And actually it's what it says in scripture is Solomon said, I will build the house of God. But never do you see the command given to Solomon to build the house of God. Now God would bless it nonetheless, but it wasn't a direction that was given by God. Solomon would then build this house and it would be ornate. It would be amazing. It would be a wonder to see. Can't see it because it was destroyed. It was destroyed in 586 BC when the Babylonian Empire came and defeated Israel. They tore the, the temple completely down. Now up, up until that time, they would offer sacrifices and do all that God had commanded in the law, but then it was destroyed, it was wiped out. And so we can see that the promise that God had given, it, it didn't carry on through Solomon. Uh, the main reason for that was Solomon was a man and he was merely a man. He wasn't a man that was completely sinless before the Lord. Well, after that, uh, 70 years later, the temple would be rebuilt and it would be rebuilt built by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And it's when they came back from Babylon and inhabited the land. Ezra came, he built the wall. Zerubbabel came and he built the temple. And it would be in, in 516 uh, BC that the temple would be rebuilt. And that temple would last all the way until 37 BC. And in 37 BC, King Herod had in his heart to renovate Zerubbabel's temple to make it amazing. Because I guess Zerubbabel's temple didn't compare to David's temple. And King Herod, I think, just really wanted to make a name for himself. Which he did. He tore down this and rebuilt an amazing temple. That would have been the same temple that would have existed at the time that Jesus walked on the earth. It would be the temple that he went into and where they were selling things and, and all of that, okay? So here, fast forwarding, we see a physical building temple. But God again said, the temple that I will build you, <laughs> I'm gonna build a house, I will be his father, he'll be my son. Let's look at the New Testament and what Jesus said. 
Here we have in John 1, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, for those of you that know your Bibles, John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word, what? Was God. And then in verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This was God building his house. Not of bricks, not of mortar, not of cedar, but of flesh. When he himself would come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This temple that God was bringing about wasn't that of a physical temple, but a fleshly temple. And it's found in the person of Jesus. But I underlined, I want you to catch this. What does it say? The word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. It dwelt among us. So we see Jesus here is the second temple. And as that temple, what was God's purpose? To dwell with his people. To dwell with his people. And a lot of people will wonder, like, what does God look like? I mean, God, the Father, what's he look like? You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Because Jesus, when he lived on this earth, a sinless life, he demonstrates to us who God was who God is, his compassion, his mercy, all of those things. Again, it was God's desire to dwell among his people. Even Jesus himself in John 2, 19 and 22 refers to himself as the temple of God when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body. Now the people all thought Jesus was like referring to the temple that Herod had built and they said, that's heresy, that's crazy, you know? But Jesus, he wasn't talking about that building, he was talking about his body. And he did just that, didn't he? Because they did destroy his temple. And three days later, he raised it back up when he rose from the grave. And so we see Jesus as a picture of the temple of God dwelling amongst the people of this world, revealing to them who? The image of God, bearing the image of God. Okay. Now, this is where it gets crazy, and this is where our call and our purpose begins to come in. Jesus had some crazy things to say about you and me that would put our faith in him. Looking at these next verses, this is one thing Jesus said, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do. Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I'll do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That verse used to just throw me for a loop because I'm like, Jesus said we're gonna do greater things than he did? Like, I don't know. Like, come on. I've never walked on water, never healed, never raised the dead. You know, we're gonna do greater works than he did? Well, I don't think it was speaking necessarily of quality, but quantity. Because what God was about to do unheard of. He was going to take his spirit and not only have him reside, his spirit in the person of Christ, but he's about to multiply his tabernacles and he is going to dwell in those that put their faith in Christ. Look look what it says, John 14, 19. This is Jesus speaking. He says, a little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
So, what is all of this saying? Well, it's saying what Paul said, and it's saying what Peter said, that you and I have been called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have become the temple, the dwelling place for which God dwells. Now, you can go forward one on that, Steve. This should be something that creates both significance and a serious sobering. For us to consider that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that God dwells in us, that, well, one, brings significance to your life. No matter who you are, what circumstance you're in, whether you're a pastor or you're a plumber, we have all been called and given this this incredible role to be a container that the Spirit of God would dwell in, that he would be revealed to the world around us. Now, that should bring significance to your life if you actually take hold of what God's saying there. But it also brings some serious sobering, right? Because it's like, I'm a tabernacle. Like, my life is to demonstrate to the world what God looks like. When people see me, they should be getting a glimpse of who God is. And I think if we're real, and I sure am, I cannot do that. Well, praise God, God never intended me to do that. It's something he's wanting to do in me. He's wanting to do in you. And before you kind of just go, I think I'm overwhelmed by this. Listen to the second allegory that Peter gives. Because not only does he call us a temple or a tabernacle, a spiritual house, but he calls us a priesthood. And this is where the rubber meets the road. And this is where this begins to tie together, where we can see how we can be a tabernacle that would magnify God. God has called you and I to be priests. Going back there to First Peter chapter 2, it says, coming to him as living stones, rejected indeed by men, chosen by God, precious you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. A priesthood. Now, I don't know about you, but when you think of a priest, what comes to mind? Black suit, white collar. Maybe uh, comes to mind as somebody who's like set apart and holy and outside of the realm of who you are or where you're at. Interesting thing is, God calls us a priesthood. He calls us a priesthood. And before our minds would go to the place of, well, in order to be a priest, man, you gotta be perfect. Well, in a sense, you'd be right. But in a sense, you'd also be wrong. Again, the rule of first mention, if we're gonna learn about priests, we need to go all the way back to Exodus, where we learned about the tabernacle, And we need to learn about the priesthood that was originally called. It was Aaron and his sons that would be originally called to be the priests in the temple. But something that you need to catch in regards to them is this. This was the command, along with many other, but we didn't have enough screen to catch it all. But two key things for us to catch is this. I want you to hear this. The Lord would speak and he said, you shall also take one ram. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. You shall kill the ram. You shall take its blood and sprinkle it around. 
the altar. Then you shall cut the ram in pieces, wash its entrails, its legs, put them with them. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It's a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Then verse 19, you shall also take the other ram and Aaron his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram, take some of its blood, put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, on the tip of the right ear of his sons, on the thumb of the right hand, and on the big toes of their right foot, and sprinkle the blood around on the altar. And you shall take some of the blood that is on the altar and some of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron, on his garments, on his sons, on, his, on the garments of his sons with him. And he and his garments shall be hallowed, or you could say made holy, and his sons and his sons and his son's garments with him. Now, some of you are thinking right now, what kind of barbaric, crazy thing is this? Well, this is something you find in the Bible. (laughs) There it is right before you. But before you get grossed out and go, this is like whack and weird, it's, it's really important for us to understand what's happening here. God told Adam, Adam, in the day that you eat of the tree of good and evil, you will surely what? Die, okay? You'll surely die. And that is what happened. When they ate, they didn't drop physically dead at that moment. They would drop physically dead, but immediately death came into the heart of Adam and Eve because a wall came between them and God. God had dwelt with them and now they no longer were enjoying that that access to God that they had had. They actually would be cast out of the garden, right? In Hebrews chapter nine, it would tell us that there is no remission or no forgiveness of sins without blood sacrifice. And while this is gruesome and gross, don't miss through the gruesome and grossness the picture of what God's saying here. See, God was preparing to dwell among his people in this tabernacle. But the way he was going to dwell among his people was through the ministry of the priests who were, don't miss it, imperfect people. And they, before they could ever minister to God or to minister to others, they had to be ministered to themselves that place of the holy of holies where God would dwell, no one could come in there that had sin. And so what God was doing for the priest is he was calling them, you guys need to lay your hand upon the head of this ram. And it needs to be slain. And what was happening, don't miss it, what was happening is the ram was being judged in the place of Aaron and his sons. For the sins that they had committed, they were laying their hands, and there, were, there was no going into that place of the tabernacle and the presence of God without them applying the blood literally to their body, their ears, their thumbs and toes. It's like, that's strange, right? But it's figurative in so many ways of God's call to you and I today. And this is where the rubber begins to meet the road and this picture of how do I glorify God? How do I experience access to my heavenly father? How do I reveal him 
well, do we need to go get some rams and like bring them up here and you guys come up one by one? No. No, actually, you know what the scripture actually tells us? This was very encouraging to my heart because the Lord tells us that God never desired these sacrifices of blood. Go to the next uh, slide there for me, Steve. Listen to this. Jesus would say this. Therefore, when he came, Jesus, into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body that you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified, set apart, you would say, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Now, I want you to catch this because we could read that last part. Go, that's so barbaric. And it's amazing to me like how blown away we could get about a slaying of an animal although we go buy them in the supermarkets all the time, but somebody else slayed them. We don't like to think about that. But we could get all bent out of shape about the sacrifice of the animal, but I want you to hear what Jesus is saying right here. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, I am the ram. It's the same thing that John the Baptist would say when he was baptizing and he saw Jesus coming. He says, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. So, so hear me, hear me, priests. How, how can I be a good priest? Not by my effort, not by my ability, nor could Aaron or his sons, but by the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And even as Aaron would lay his hand and they would lay their hands upon that lamb and it would be judged in their place, Jesus is telling us, church, I am the lamb. And he would call us to rest in, trust in the sins that are in our life, the sin that separates us from our heavenly father. He once and for all, one time, he died with it. He took it. And listen to this, not only was Jesus the temple, he became the lamb that was sacrificed. He also became what? The high priest. See, Jesus, unlike you and me that have sinned, that needed to offer sacrifices for sin, he didn't. And in Hebrews chapter four, it says this, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. See, see me being a priest or you being a priest out of holy effort of ourselves Never gonna happen. 
but Jesus dying in my place and by faith me placing my hand upon what he did, placing my heart, my faith on him. Guess what, guys? When you do that, you are washed, you're cleansed, you are made pure before God. And not only are you washed of your sin, you now have a high priest that gives you access to freely come to be with God. Some of you today are like just beating yourselves up, like, like relationship with God is, is something so foreign, and even maybe you call yourself a believer today, but, but, but you and God, can I tell you today, if you will appropriate the blood of Christ and what he did for you on your life, you are washed, you are forgiven, and you have freedom to run into the presence of the living God. And, and it is this, that the church needs the most today, for it's what the world needs. See, the world has this idea that they're gonna somehow, and sadly, as the church, we're giving them the idea that if they just get their act together, they'd start going to church, quit doing this, start doing that, that they could have access to God, when the truth of the matter is, none of us have access to God except by the grace of his son, paying the price that we could never pay Church, we have access to our heavenly Father today. God would have us, number one, if we're going to be a tabernacle that magnifies and glorifies God in our life, we need to appropriate his blood upon our life. I believe we appropriate the blood of Christ on our life by preaching the gospel to ourselves daily. Oh, it was a one and done. Don't get me wrong. When Jesus died, that was it. And when you put your faith in him for the first time, that was it. He washed you. He made you new. You became born again. But the truth of the matter is, is we forget that our access to the Father isn't based on how good we're going to be, but it's solely based on his death for us. Oh, that we each day would give ourselves to remembering, God, I can't do it. I couldn't do it. You did it all. May we take time to meditate on the forgiveness of God that God has washed us and made us new as believers. For without this, there is no coming to God. There is no glorifying God, magnifying God. If you aren't coming into the presence of God, then you aren't reflecting his presence to anyone. But I can run to him, not because of who I am, but because who he is and what he's done. So we need to appropriate his blood to our lives. And we simply do that by admitting, I'm a sinner. God, you're my savior. Thank you and we run into his presence. It is on this foundation that the rest of our renovation takes place, and ultimately the glorification of God comes. Without it, without it, nothing, ixnay. But this is the foundation where renovation comes. Last week, Nick talked to us about making resolution. And oh, that we would be those that would be resolute and make resolution. God would call us to do, as we'll see here in just a moment. 
He would call us to remove things, replace things. But how do I do that? I do it by the foundation of his grace. By resting in the forgiveness that he's fully given me, I don't only get access to God, guess what I get? I get power from God. Power to live differently. Power to to be as he would want me to be. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we find Peter say this, therefore laying aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. God would have us remove those things that hinder. He'd have us remove those things that hinder. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Your access to God does not come from your ability to remove those things that hinder. Your access to God comes through his sacrifice for you, and it's from that that we then go, man, what is it that's keeping me from seeing the goodness and grace of God? What is it that's keeping me from recognizing I have full access and power to God? And Well, for some of us that are believers here today, and I'm speaking to the believer specifically on this point, there are things that are hindering in your life currently, possibly. And God would want you to highlight that, pinpoint that. And there are things that he would seek to have you remove. Why? Because he loves you. And he wants you to see his love for you. And there's things that just keep us from that. And those things that he mentions there in verse one are some of those very things. How can we remove these things? The number one way that I have found in dealing with my wicked heart is to confess my sin and to get prayer from another. The Bible tells us that in James. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. And man, that's a hard one because we all want to put on these masks that we've got it all together. But man, when you want to really get real and you realize there's something that's holding you back, hindering your reflection of God and your enjoyment of God, a lot of times that comes to the place of, yeah, you need to confess it to the Lord, but maybe you need to confess it to a brother. Doesn't mean you have to come stand up in front of the church and tell everyone, God may lead you to do such a thing. But often it's just going to another brother. So you know what? I love this more than I hate it. Would you pray with me that I'd hate what I love? Oh, God loves a humble heart. And he answers those prayers. And I've watched again and again in my life. I've seen it in so many others' lives where, where bondages have just been broken as people have confessed, not only to the Lord, but to each other and prayed for one another. But... but Number three, not only do we need to remove the things that hinder, but we need to replace them with something else. Listen to what he says here at the second part of uh, verse one and two of, of Second Peter. He says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So on one hand, Peter says, listen, guys, you need to remove these things, this envy, this gossip, this deceit, or whatever that thing is. 
but he isn't just telling them remove it. And I think a lot of times we try to do that as believers. We try to remove something, but we don't replace it with something else. I love what Paul says in Ephesians. He says, be not drunk with wine, but he doesn't just leave it there. He says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And so if you just seek to, you know, not be drunk with wine, but you're not filling that with the presence of the Holy Spirit, that can be a, a battle that is very difficult. But God is calling us to remove things that hinder, replace with things that help. One of those things that he points out right here is the word, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Guys, God did not give us his word as homework. He didn't give it to us as some duty or some check off so as to please him. You know, you can't read enough of your Bible to please God. Otherwise, Jesus would never have had to die. He is already completely pleased in the sacrifice of his son. And for you to even try to add to what he has done is ridiculous. But he has given us this word to remind us of his love. And the word of God should be such a big part of the person of God's life. Even as a baby, And you guys, newborn babies, what do they do? They sleep, they eat, and they poop. That's pretty much it. But they desire that pure milk of the word. Not the word, but the milk. And they're longing for it. And it's on that milk alone that they originally grow and rather quite fast. But it's the milk that brings sustenance. You want to grow in your faith? You want to have greater faith in God? The Bible tells us Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the word of God. So remove these things, but replace with the word of God. Make it something that isn't a chore, but something that you're actually seeking to see God in and find his grace in. Number uh, uh, two, not only replace with the word, but we need to replace with fellowship. Fellowship, listen to what he says, 1 Peter 1, 5. We already read this verse, but you might have missed this part. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house. So we, we have a plural there in the word stones. You are the tabernacle of God. God as an individual has sought to come and dwell in you, but we are each a stone in his big tabernacle. We are the body of Christ. Christ has deposited his spirit into each of us. And we are to be built up upon one another. And guys, one way that you and I grow and we grow in the glory and the magnifying of God is by doing what we're doing right now, coming together. As iron sharpens iron, a brother sharpens a brother. Paul would warn, don't forsake the gathering together of the saints. When we come together on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or in a life group or a home group or maybe just coming together in our living room with some other believing brothers and sisters, there's a kindling that happens that's needed that God has called us to. That unity, remember, his purpose, not only to be connected with him but with one another. Fellowship is such a key thing that plays out in our walk as Believers, We could go much more into that. I don't have time, so I won't. But he reminds us of fellowship. And then number three, and the final thing, as we begin to wind this down, 
is 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. This is where he knocks it up a notch. Like, you're not just a priesthood, you're a royal priesthood, not because of yourself, but because of him that's in you. A holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's something else that as we remove, we can replace worship, praise, thanksgiving to God. There is such power in praise and worship and adoration as we give God the thanks that he deserves. But I'm gonna gonna be real with you. I think so often our praises are not of him And this is why we struggle with worship a lot of times because we think we're worshiping or trying to worship God when really we're worshiping ourselves. And let me give you a case in point. I would battle a lot of times like when there was a time of worship that came through singing and come together. And if I'd had a difficult week, hadn't done my devotions like I'd maybe put on my heart to, didn't share with somebody that God put on my heart to share with. I'd come and just feel so defeated and trying to worship, trying to enter in, trying to praise him. Who who was I focused on? Me. So I'm not really worshiping God at that moment. I'm worshiping self. But just listen, the flip side of that is just as bad. Other times, come in. Woo! And I'm praising and I'm thanking him. Why? Good week, man. He put on my heart to share with that person. I did. I did all my Bible studies this week. I check, 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 check. And I'm, God is so good. God is so good. I am so great. Who am I focused on? Me. See, listen to this. Our worship of God never has to change based on experiences in life. You will have victory this week. You will have failures this week. But my access and my praise of God is not based on my merit, but based on his sacrifice. And so I can worship him with all of my heart because it's he that's called me out of darkness, not me that's called me out of darkness. This becomes a great foundation to get your eyes back on the prize of God's grace, God's sacrifice, his gospel. God wants you to worship him. We are a broken people, but he is a good God, and that doesn't change despite who you are. Praise the Lord for that. This is also a reminder to me that this praise that we would offer is, guys, as a tabernacle, as a priest for God, you are not drawing people to yourself, but past yourself to God. It isn't to end with us, it's to begin with God. And what we need to be proclaiming to the world around us is that he called us out of darkness. We didn't drag ourselves out of the darkness, but we'll make people, and maybe not even intentionally, make people think they've got to quit doing this, start doing that, before they're going to be accepted by God, when in reality, that isn't what happened for you or me that have truly accepted him. We just finally put our hand, our heart, on the cross of what he did for our lives. And guys, 
The world needs to see our praise and they need to understand what our praise is in, not ourselves, but it's in, in him.